The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable. Settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) The story featured in this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is by author Eric Dodd and is actually three stories, all of them connected and part of the same series of events told here in sequential order. Tonight, we begin with the first tale in this saga, entitled, The Stairs and the Doorway. Part 1. The Stairs and the Doorway I don't feel like I'm a nosy person. No more nosy than the next guy. I just have what my ma would call an unhealthy amount of curiosity. I was the kid who climbed to the top of the big oak in the backyard just to see what was in the crow's nest. I was the kid who dug a hole in the backyard so deep that I hid groundwater because I was convinced there was a cave under our house and I wanted to see it. To see. My folks aren't dirt poor, but they're pretty close. They're part of that missing middle of America, the people who work 40 hours a week until they die with no savings to speak of. I got my first job at a horse stable when I was 14. It didn't last very long. I knew I needed to get a job because I knew we needed the money. So I bounced around for the next few years, washing dishes, waiting tables, until I graduated high school. Pop was really tough on me about college. He never went. Nobody in his family had. So, there were a few fights about where I would go after school. It was a huge shock to me when, just after graduation, he drove me down to the uni. He'd been classmates with the dean and they'd come up with an arrangement where I'd get a full scholarship, provided I made good grades and worked for the university. I never felt like a scholar. In high school, I kept my head down and did enough to get by, pulling off B's and a few C's. I wasn't interested in learning because learning wasn't interesting. Uni was different. 
I took mainly core classes, math, English, history, science, but they were fascinating. For one thing, nobody cared if I showed up or not. It was entirely up to me to succeed, so I did. In exchange for my education, I worked security and did some light maintenance duties. Maintenance was a no-brainer. I've always been handy, and most of the fix-it jobs were the type that could be solved with a liberal application of WD-40 or elbow grease, or both. Security was a different story. Security gave me superpowers. The job itself was pretty easy. I got a uniform, a badge, a flashlight, and Ma gave me some keychain mace for my birthday. No, I didn't get a gun. They weren't allowed on campus anyway. I worked mostly nights and weekends, and doubled during long holiday breaks. I was to walk around the full campus twice in a night, checking the labs, computer center, and library. The rest of my time was pretty much my own. There were two other guards, Jake and Al, but they worked different shifts from me. We had overlap nights on Wednesday nights where we'd get together for about an hour to discuss any major events or changes. There might have been some beer at those meetings, but I'm underage and you can't prove anything. Jake... We're mostly day shift, and Al worked swings and some overnights during the week. Jake was a younger guy, turning to be on the local police force, so he took his job pretty seriously. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure Al mostly slept during his shifts. Al was two years older than dirt, so he deserved his rest. Remember that bit about superpowers? My first night on the job, Al gave me a huge keychain with about a thousand keys on it. It weighed nearly five pounds and was secured to my belt with a heavy-duty metal chain. Don't lose that keychain, kid, Al said. You got the keys to the kingdom right there. And any door that don't open, you don't want to go in it. My work hobby, the thing that kept me awake on those long, cold winter night breaks, was exploring. I made it a point every night to open some door that I'd never opened before. I started in the news section, where the library and computer center were, opening each room, each closet, making a map in my head of where everything was. Some nights I might explore two or three rooms, some nights I might not have time for anything more than an odd, out-of-the-way broom closet. The uni is actually a pretty large campus for having a full student body of only twelve to 1,300. It was built as a Methodist college in 1896, and became state-owned in the 30s. There were three main sections. The old school housed the administration offices and a few unlucky classrooms. Unlucky due to the lack of central heat and air, and the three-story building had no elevators. The lab were a brutalist horror of poured concrete slabs and tiny windows built back in the 70s when buildings looked like Soviet radiators uh, when they were in style. The new library was steadily losing its new, built in the late 90s boom, and made in that unique red brick and glass style, like everything else during those years. When I think back to those early days, those days before, I, I think how stupid I was, how naive. I should have thought about winter. I should have thought about the solstice. By December of my sophomore year of college, I'd cleared every room in the new library, I'd opened every door, checked every closet, and had a good mental map of the whole building. It was, ultimately, pretty unimpressive. 
I found no buried treasure, no secret stash of missing computer supplies cached in a forgotten closet. I did find a small, sweaty stack of bad porno mags in a supply closet in the basement level. Wicked, wicked cowgirls. Uh, who was I to judge? December is the slow time for the uni. After the mad rush of finals, the campus was suddenly deserted, the remaining few staff seeming lost. The building stood silent and dark in the thin winter breezes. We had a steady series of snowstorms, but none bad enough to close the campus. I made sure the sidewalks were clear and the entryways salted, and otherwise tried to stay indoors. Besides, I had the old school to explore. The main old school building, Downing Hall, was a four-story V-shaped building. It had no elevators, tiny stairwells, and was only exempted from ADA compliance due to its historical importance. It had no air conditioning, save for sporadic window mount units that were only permitted to be installed in the rear of the building so as to not spoil the building's historic charm. The building's heat came from a massive ancient boiler in the basement. As far as I knew, Al was the only person who knew anything about the boiler, and he must have kept it in good shape because I never heard of any complaints about it. I spent the second week, after finals week, poking through the top floors of Downing Hall. I didn't have a lot of time for exploring every night, as the snow gave me more than usual upkeep chores, but I made steady progress. I discovered a small room in the attic on the left wing that must have been an old dean's office, complete with a beautiful antique desk and wardrobe. I checked both, thinking I might find something historic to give to the dean, but the wardrobe was empty save for a moth-eaten wool scarf, and the desk's contents were limited to a few old newspapers and some tax forms from the 1950s. A level below, on the building's fourth floor, I found two dozen small, empty classrooms. In my handyman mindset, I checked the windows for loose glass panes and for water or rodent damage. I fully expected to see rat droppings or at least some insect damage, but I found none. The second and third floors were much the same, except the rooms in the rear of the building were air-conditioned and thus actively used for classes when school was in session. The main floor was administration and included the dean's office. I thought it wise not to snoop around in my own boss's office or in payroll, so I skipped a lot of these rooms. I made my way to the stairwell, to the basement, used my superhero keychain, opened the heavy door and went down. The basement of Downing Hall was different from that of the new library. For one thing, it was a lot more cramped. The hallway was narrow and the ceiling was low, with doorways leading off at regular intervals. I checked every room, flipping the old two-button switches to on, using my flashlight on the dark corners. I'd carried a few packs of spare light bulbs, the fancy new CFC bulbs, in my satchel, thinking to replace any that had been burned out and save the environment while I was at it. The little rooms mostly contained junk, spare desks, filing cabinets, full of 40- and 50-year-old papers, old holiday decorations, and so forth, lit by naked hanging bulbs. I'm not an imaginative kind of guy. I guess I'm pretty smart. I made straight A's in my college courses. It never occurred to me to be scared, I don't think. I'm alone in a creepy old basement. This was my place, my job, my hobby. 
and it all seemed so normal. By the night of the 20th of December, I had made my way to the boiler room. The furnace was a massive monstrosity of iron and rivets, pipes and gauges. It was hellishly hot in that room, and equally loud. It was, however, neat and very clean. Al kept it that way because he said, The clean boiler lets you get more shut-eye. The furnace had been converted from coal to gas at some point, but the soot had stained the walls of the room and the old coal chute still opened in one of the corners. I had no intention of giving the boiler room more than a glance. I'd been there dozens of times. There was nothing to see, just a workbench and the furnace itself, when I noticed a small door to the back and left behind the furnace. I swear, I thought to myself, I'd never seen that before. But then again, I had never stood in that particular spot beside the workbench, and I had never really looked. The door was smaller than normal, maybe five feet tall, painted in the same non-colored drab gray-brown of the walls, and it was made of metal just like the other doors in the basement. I went over to the door and touched the handle. I think the body knows sometimes when things are wrong. Have you ever had that feeling like you're being watched? When you know you're totally alone and... Nobody can see you, but you feel eyes on you. Have you ever gone left instead of right? Because you got a feeling that you just shouldn't go to the right today. Didn't work that way for me. When I touched that doorknob, nothing, absolutely nothing, felt any different. My head didn't hurt, my neck hairs didn't stand up, and I didn't hear an inner voice saying, Don't do it. The doorknob turned, but the door wouldn't open. I looked more closely and saw a small keyhole. I checked my magic keychain and found three possible matches. Struck out with the first two, and the third worked. Of course. Of course. Yeah. The hinges squealed like they hadn't been used in a long time. Decades. My handyman instincts noted it. WD-40, I mumbled. I hauled open the door and stepped through into another small, cramped hallway. The light switch worked, and the single bulb blew with a crack. Damn it. My hackles did raise then. I flicked on my flashlight and quickly swapped out the bulb, right there with the new one. I looked around and saw this hallway was narrow, straight, and ended a few yards away at another door. That door easily opened onto another stairway. Oh, what the hell, I said. Nobody ever mentioned a sub-basement for this building. The hairs in the back of my neck were still standing out. I shook it off his nerves from the blown bulb and walked to the stairwell. It was a standard stairwell. It looked pretty much the same as the others in the building. I walked to the bottom and met another door. I pushed through it to see another long, narrow hallway with doors leading off to either side at regular intervals. The first door to my left was unlocked and opened easily enough onto a storage closet. There were stacks of late 60s-era books, a few desks, and a decaying mop in its bucket. The door across from it was unlocked, but did not open so easily. I hauled the door open to find a larger room that looked to have been used as a classroom. There were desks, a blackboard, anatomical diagrams, and posters on the walls. Everything was covered in an inch of dust and appeared not to have been touched in a long time. Why would anybody put a classroom down here, I mumbled to myself. 
How would they even convince students to get down here in the first place? I remember thinking at that point that I must have somehow discovered a back way into the other wing of the V-shaped downing hall. Maybe this is where the old science classes were held, before the labs were built. I moved on to the next set of rooms. They were both classrooms, abandoned, dust-covered, and mostly empty. So were the next pair, and the next. I saw a total of twelve disused classrooms in that hallway, and a small break room complete with a lonely coffee pot. I also found two small restrooms. And I didn't spend much time checking them out, as the lights didn't work, and I didn't feel like replacing those bulbs. I found myself getting slightly nervous. I was in a strange section of the campus, and I was working alone that night. In the back of my mind, I just couldn't truly justify the existence, the waste, of a whole floor full of unused classrooms. When I got to the end of the hallway, I met another steel door. I opened it and saw another stairwell. I was fully expecting this stairwell to go up, to connect to one of the other main stairwells in Downing Hall. The stairs only went down. This was the point, I remember, I wish I began to get scared. No way. There was no way these stairs go down. How would anybody get down here? Here, here, here. Yeah, the stairwell echoed to me. I should have checked the time. I should have been concerned with finishing my rounds. I should have been hungry for lunch. I should have run. I started to climb down the stairs. This stairwell was unlit and appeared to be much older and in much worse condition than the others. It was also longer, much longer. After a few minutes of walking down the steps, I began to count them. At every twelve steps, there was a small landing, a turn, and another set of steps. Down. After ten landings, I reached another door. It was unlocked and opened easily. The hinges squealed, and the echoes died like lost things in the dark. I groped against the left wall for a light switch, and there was none. I checked the right, and the wall was equally smooth. I cast the flashlight around, but saw nothing. Nothing forward, nothing to either side, nothing above. I snapped my fingers, listening for the echo. I may or may not have heard one. I slowly came to realize that the room into which I had entered was enormous, cavernous, possibly the biggest room I'd ever physically experienced. I shrank back to the doorway for a moment. This room can't be here, I said to myself. I started to think about going back, but I also started to think about wanting to know what was in there. I took a step forward, and another, until I was walking steadily into the room. I kept a steady pace, counting my steps. I looked over my shoulder every few yards, using the light from the open doorway, to orient myself. I walked slowly for a hundred yards, two hundred yards, until I saw a dim glow ahead. The glow got faintly brighter and larger as I walked toward it. Another hundred yards, and another, and three more passed until I could make out a small dim light bulb near a door. That door was of a different type entirely. It was huge. Fourteen feet tall, at least, 
and half again as wide. The surface was black metal, studded with rivets and bolts, mounted on huge hinges. Across the face of the door, graved into the metal, were words in some strange, looping script that I could not recognize. Every surface was carved with that script, or with strange diagrams made of splayed, circle-ended lines. In the center of the door was a large spoke wheel lock, and in the center of the lock was a tiny keyhole. Above the keyhole was a sigil enclosed in three circles. I looked behind me and could not see the light from the stairwell. I couldn't see anything at all. I held the superhero keychain to the dim light and flipped through the keys. Of course, there was one small battered key that looked as if it might fit. I inserted it into the lock and turned it. I heard a click and a thud and a sound from within the door like pouring pebbles or dry teeth. I pulled the key from the lock and grasped the spokes of the wheel lock. My heart was racing and sweat was dribbling into my eyes. I turned the spokes to the left, counterclockwise. Wittershins. Some buried memory in my head said, and kept turning until the wheel stopped. There was another thud, and a crack, and then silence. The darkness behind me no longer felt empty. In fact, it felt positively crowded, as if I had an audience watching me. I stepped back from the door and flashed my light around. Still nothing. Dry, empty floor. I turned back to the door, grasped the large cast-iron handles, and pulled. Nothing. I tried harder, putting all my weight into the pull, and at the last moment, at the end of my strength, I heard another crack, and the door groaned open on a draft of cool, stinking air. The smell was heavy, moist, and musky. I had a flash memory of my mother taking me to the zoo as a child and the smell of the cat house with the lions. At the thought of the lions, I let go of the handles and stumbled back a bit. I carefully shone my light into the yawning black crevice of the open door. I saw a short hallway that opened into a small, cramped room. I saw a filthy, rusted metal chair. I saw bones small bones. I saw, or heard, or smelled, a form so black it seemed to suck in the light of my flashlight. I saw a black form rushing toward me, running towards me, filling the hallway, howling and laughing and speaking in a voice that sounded like mountains collapsing. I remember fangs and the words that turned my bones to rusted glass. I remember feathers and a hand with too many fingers jeweled with something unspeakable, and the smell, the stink of something long-caged. I remember wings. I don't know how long I wandered in the dark, alone, under hundreds of feet of rock. There was no light, there was no way to judge time. My flashlight was dead, and my cell phone, and even the small specks of luminescent paint on my cheap wristwatch were dark. There was something wrong with my right leg. It hurt, but I couldn't see enough to find out why. I kept hearing my audience there in that cavernous room. I screamed at them. I felt one of them touch my face, and I threw my flashlight at it. 
The flashlight bounced and rattled and became still somewhere that I was not. Something laughed later. I raved and screamed but didn't throw anything else. I found the doorway after hours or days of crawling. There were no lights in the stairwell. After years of climbing, I crawled into that first forgotten hallway. I sliced my fingers on the crushed remains of the light bulbs I'd packed in my satchel. I crawled down the hallway and reached the next stairwell. I hauled myself up them and finally out into the boiler room. When I staggered out of Downing Hall two full days after going in, it was into dim winter daylight and a full police presence. Five people had been found dead on and around the campus. All had been brutally, savagely murdered. Bodies splayed open, viscera missing. The teeth marks suggested a wild animal, but the murder scenes and body positioning also displayed a certain intelligence to them. There was also the writing, carved into the flesh when it was not yet dead meat. The cops wouldn't talk about the writing, and the cops wouldn't talk to me either, not afterward. When they first saw me stumble out into daylight, covered in blood, they assumed I was the perpetrator. They quickly changed their assumptions when the medics pointed out the green stick fracture, the dehydration, the concussion, and the obvious shock. The cops asked a lot of questions and answered as best as they could. I told them about the door in the boiler room. They couldn't find it. They showed me the bare, smooth wall from where I had crawled, dazed and broken. My track stopped at that wall. Two cops tried breaking through the wall in that spot, only to meet old brick and older earth past that. The cops wanted to know where the long black feathers came from, stuck to my clothes by dried blood. I didn't know. I, I didn't want to know. Cops, the medics, nobody would look at me anymore. The scars on my face, the deep, gouged-out writing, and not a sight that most would want to see. I was marked. Whatever I had let out... Whatever had killed and eaten five people, and a week later six more, it marked me as a friend. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of Eric Dodd's The Stairs and the Doorway. We now continue 
the author's horror saga, with the second part of the story, entitled Storage. There's not a lot of work out there for a 20-ish ex-security guard with a bad case of PTSD. And if that dumb kid was hideously scarred by a serial killer that had carved a swath of victims across three states and disappeared without a trace, that kid can barely get a hamburger at McDonald's, much less gainful employment. My parents weren't able to help much. The wounds on my forehead and cheeks healed after a few weeks or months. I wasn't counting. You can still see them if you look closely, or in the moonlight. Nobody looks too closely these days. There's something about my eyes that seem to reflect the things that I've seen. I can identify with Winston from Ghostbusters. I've seen some things you wouldn't believe. And those things would turn you white if not stark raving mad. And I may be, in fact, mad, because I keep seeing it. After the incident, I spent a few days in the hospital and a few weeks in the psych ward. They assumed I suffered a psychotic break due to trauma or shock, and since most of my story did in fact sound like delusional ravings, off to the pretty pastel room I went. Life went on, the university reopened for classes on schedule, and the cops eventually stopped questioning me. I went home and sat on the couch for a few weeks and gradually got the sense that my parents wanted me gone. I seemed to make them nervous. It seemed to make everyone nervous now. Tempers flared, words were said, and the next day I was on a bus to somewhere. Anywhere. I had about a thousand in savings, plus my dad had stashed another five hundred in my bags, so I was able to rent cheap rooms and eat cheaper meals along the way. But I knew I would need to find a job soon. I'd been traveling in a vaguely southern path, and finally ended up in a bus station in a town on the outskirts of Birmingham, crouched in between the off-ramp to I-65 and a storage facility. I would say it was in an industrial district, but it seems that Birmingham is entirely failed industrial district. The place had the charm of a three-day dead whore, and smelled like one as well. Walking outside the bus station and past the chain-link fence encircling the U-Store facility... I noticed a dingy yellow hiring sign in the office window. What the hell, I thought, and pushed the dust-hazed door open and went inside. The manager's name was Al, but he was nothing like my scrawny old ex-co-worker. Al was a morbidly obese black man with a gap between his two front teeth and a share t-shirt that looked as if it had been new in the 80s. You got ID? You got no needle holes, you don't stink like booze, and you even got a resume. You must be my gift from God. You hired. You start right now. You got a place to stay? No, sir. Good, that's better. You stay in the apartment upstairs. I'll pay you eight bucks an hour for 40 hours a week. You work more than 40 in a week, pretend you're paying me rent. You're off on Mondays and Tuesdays. If you want health insurance... You can call the president, because I ain't seen mine yet either. Al took me on a tour of the facility. U-Store was much bigger than it looked, consisting of 12 buildings arranged inside a square security fence. 
Each building had four stories above ground and two more below ground. The lowest levels were premium rate and surprisingly heavily secured with motion sensors and video cameras at every hallway intersection. Motion sensors are a pain in the butt. They go off if a moth flies down the hall, but we still have to check video and log it. The job was pretty much the same security job I was used to. Work an overnight shift, 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. Walk the perimeter twice, check the storage buildings once, pick up any trash, then go back and check the alarms and video. Log anything out of the ordinary and investigate as needed. Mostly, you just keep your mouth shut and let customers alone. They're paying our bills, so you don't need to know what they're doing in their unit. Which may, in fact, be each other. Hal laughed. If a customer gets loud, makes a scene, or especially if they trash the facilities, you call the cops first and me second. Al wrapped a metal storage unit wall, which echoed beamingly down the hallways. These walls are pretty strong, but you can punch a dent into one with your fist, and a pocket knife will poke a hole in it. Nobody wants to rent a unit that's all dented up, and these walls are hell to replace. We had been walking the security circuit, with Al pointing out each checkpoint, and we'd reached the entrance to the high security section. Customers take the elevator. they got to put in their code to get that elevator to show up, and they got to put in their code again to go down to B1 or B2. It really messes them up. They get confused, and some of them will panic inside the elevator, so you got to keep your radio on you at all time. They'll eventually see the intercom button and call you, so you got to explain to them they got to put their code in again. For us, it's the stairs, because I hate those damn elevators. Al swiped his badge and swung the heavy door open to the stairwell, and we walked through, and I froze. It was the same stairs. How could it be the same stairs? I stood there, tiny breath whistling in my throat, hand-locked in a death grip on the cold steel railing. Hey, you okay? You having a heart attack or something? I blinked. It wasn't the same stairs, not at all. These were new, shiny steel, brightly lit, and I could clearly see the bottom. No, sorry, I thought I had to sneeze, was waiting for it. Yeah, you're not kidding, all the freaking dust in here. Wait till spring and it's like yellow snow all over. High security, or HS, was similar to the higher levels, but more brightly lit. The units were larger, so there were less of them. Wow, it's cold down here, I said. Yeah, we keep it at 50 year-round. We got some law firms that keep their papers here. And don't tell nobody, but we got some government agencies that do the same. We keep it cool and dry, and their papers will stick around forever. Got some customers that keep art down here, and antiques and stuff like that, Al said. The doors to the HS area were car-width, and looked to be made of sturdier stuff than the flimsy sheet metal of the less expensive units. Can people store cars down here, Al? I asked. Nah, no way to get them down here. Building 3 has a ramp and a loading dock for cars, but most people don't want to store them in these buildings. Regulations say you gotta drain them of oil and gas and any other fluid, which makes them a pain to get into the units. Regs say no explosives. Remember that, kid. You see some dumbass throwing his lawnmower and the gas can? You log it and you tell me. 
We continued touring the HS levels B1 and B2. Al pointed out the security cameras at each intersection and at midpoints down the hallways and showed me where the security route would take me. Don't always walk the same route. That'll drive you nuts. Mix it up some. Make sure you tag those checkpoints, said Al. We made it back to the office, and Al took me upstairs to a small apartment. It was a little bigger than my dorm room in college, with a small kitchen, shower, bed, closet, and a TV. Al pointed at the TV. That might have cable. It ain't supposed to, and I've never seen a bill, but I won't tell if you don't. Okay, kid, you better get some sleep. You're on shift at nine. If you're late or I catch you sleeping, you're out in your ass. Get people waiting to rent a unit at 3 a.m. They're idiots or trying to rob you. Tell them the office is closed at night. Al squinted at me. You know how to work a gun, he asked. Yeah, my dad taught me. Is this that bad of an area, I asked. Oh, hell no, kid. You may need to show the gun to some tweakers, that's about all. The glass is all bulletproof, and those are solid steel doors. If some junkie's screwing with you in the office, there's a gun under the desk. It ain't loaded, but there's clips in the bottom drawer if you need them. He looked me directly in the eyes, and if you do need them, you don't need them. You call me on the radio, which is what you'll do. What about inside the facility, I asked. You're inside a highly secured, state-of-the-art storage facility with a radio and keys to nearly a thousand steel doors. I bet you can figure something out, Al replied. He left, and I took my duffel bag to my room and tried to sleep. The first night was non-eventful, so was the next and the next. Weeks passed, and I began to feel better. I got into the swing of being a security guard again, which is most looking for differences. I recognized the patterns of U-Store and its customers, The late-night crowd are usually pretty quiet, except for Thursday night band practice. Some kids had gotten the bright idea to rent out one of the cheap ground-level units to store their musical instruments in, and they practiced every Thursday night. I didn't mind. They weren't that bad. About once a month, on a Wednesday night, there was a porn shoot in one of the units. I wasn't very clear on what was going on until I mentioned it to Al the next day. A long black limo pulled up around 11 p.m., and several stripper-quality girls got out, followed by a few guys. They'd all troop down to one of the larger HS units, and they'd pack up and be gone before dawn. We rent the units, Al said, so long as they're paying and not breaking the units, we don't say a word. Most of the customers weren't like that, though. They were regular people moving stuff around up late because they had to work and couldn't move during the day. I saw guys fixing cars, a woman who used a large unit as her extra closet full of clothes, and a couple who were building a baby crib. They had a full woodworking shop set up inside their unit, complete with dust suppression and built-in vacuums, but mostly it was people moving boxes of stuff in and out. Everything was going so well for maybe six weeks, and then I saw it. I saw her. I'd become accustomed to the false alerts from the motion-sensing cameras, especially in Building 8. The building was close to the highway, so I suspected the sensors were falsing due to road vibrations. 
Once or twice a night, usually in the long stretch of dark between 3 a.m. and dawn, I'd hear the beeping from one of the many cameras in B-1 or B-2 in Building 8. I'd put down my book, acknowledge the alert, write down F.A., false alert, in the logbook, and glance at the long, empty, brightly colored corridors in the monitors. It was early on a Wednesday morning, the beginning of my week, and I'd been playing a game on my DS when the alerts went off. I sighed and put down my Game Boy. I reached for the logbook and noticed something in the monitors from the corner of my eye. I looked up and saw, in the middle of the hallway, a small shape. I leaned closer and hit the camera controls to switch to a closer view. Standing in the middle of a highly secured, brightly lit hallway, two floors underground, was a little girl in a bridal gown. What the fu- I started to say, and a girl's head snapped up toward the camera, her black eyes staring at me through the monitor as if she'd heard me. She lifted a finger to her lips and ran off screen. I frantically thumbed through the camera views but could not see her anywhere. Screw this, I muttered to myself, and I grabbed my flashlight and the gun from the holster under the desk. I bolted out of the office door, pausing only to make sure it was locked, and started running down the paved alley leading to Building 8. At this point, I wasn't thinking of anything supernatural. I was thinking of the scumbags who made porno movies in my facilities, and thinking maybe that little girl had escaped something really awful, or was still involved in it. I called Al on his radio while I ran. Al, wake up. We got an intruder in Building 8. Repeated. Intruder in Building 8. Wake up. Al lived nearby, within radio range, and he mumbled something about being on his way. I badged the main door to Building 8, flung it open, and ran across to the stairwell. The panic, which hadn't returned since my first day, hit me like drowning in the ocean. I stopped, backed up, and shut the stairwell door. I didn't have time for this. I ran to the elevator, punched in my override code, stepped inside, punched in my code again, and rode the slowest elevator in the world down to B2, the gently playing music version of Cher's Believe did nothing to make the situation better. I cautiously stepped into the corridor. I kept the gun in my jacket pocket, not wanting to spook anyone, especially with the kid involved. I walked down the hallway and found nothing. Turned at the end, down the next hallway, still nothing. No locks out of place, no units open, no sounds, no smells, nothing. I checked the stairwell. Nothing. Gritted my teeth and walked to the stairs to the B-1 landing. Looked out the door and found nothing. By this point, I was hoping I would find anything. A shoe, a body, hell, a whole murder scene, but there was nothing. My radio crackled and I jumped and bit my tongue. I said, where are you? Al's voice grumbled over the radio. B-2 in Building 8, South Stairwell, I said. Found anything? Al asked. Not a thing. Sorry, man. It's probably a false alert. Hey, it happens. Just once, though. Meet you back at the office. We'll check the tapes. Roger, Roger, I said into the radio. I sighed and walked down the long hallway to the elevator. I checked the remaining hallways, retraced my steps to the elevator, and punched in my code. As the elevator doors closed, I thought I heard a sound. A girlish giggle. God 
Damn it, I said. I punched the cancel. The elevator doors slid open. I stepped out and quickly looked out both ways. There, to my left, a gauzy white shape disappeared around the corner. Another giggle. I looked up at the security camera, pointed at it, then pointed in the direction of the corner. Holding my flashlight like a club, I jogged to the corner and quickly checked both ways. Nothing. Of course. I ran as fast as I could down the long corridor to its end, turned and saw nothing. Ran to the intersection. Nothing. To the next intersection. Nothing. To the end. Nothing. Finally, wheezing, out of breath, I yelled, Okay, you bastard. I give up. Enough from you for the night. Al was at the desk when I got back. Enjoy your exercise, kid, he asked. Yeah, I'm trying out for the Olympics, I replied. Maybe the Special Olympics. I just watched you run two miles inside Billing 8 for no good reason, Al said. Figures, I said. So you saw nothing on any of the cameras? Not a thing. Al made me sit through repeated viewings of the security footage. He made it a point to show me pointing at the camera from all angles. Each camera showed me the bright, empty hallways. You sure you're not on anything, man? Al asked. I swear I saw something. I said. Chill, man. This is me messing with you. I believe you. It gets late here. You see things. Stare at those screens long enough not seeing anything, and your mind will start adding stuff up just because it's bored. I've seen things too, Al said. Yeah? Like what? Al shifted in his seat. I never seen a girl. I saw a dude walking down the hallway once, normal-looking dude, walking around like he was a customer. But that console there shows door accesses, and it hadn't gone off in a while. I thought maybe some asshole was trying to live in one of the units, which is against regs. It happened sometimes. I checked it out, and there wasn't anybody there. Al reached into the microfridge under the desk and pulled out one of his favorite lime sodas. That wasn't the worst, though, he said, cracking open the can. I saw blood once. A whole lot splashed around all over the damn place. I used to take those damn elevators at one time. Ding, door opens and took a deep swig of his drink. I just stood there. The door closed. I coated it open again and it was gone. I know it wasn't real. I'd been working about 20 hours straight. I just figured something don't want me riding the elevators no more, so I don't. It got worse after that. I can't help but think that my pursuit and my taunts woke something up. Or maybe something recognized me. Afterwards, I had company every night. The still, sterile mood of the facility from before had changed, grown lower, grown mean, like it was lying in wait. When I made my rounds, I would hear footsteps behind me or down adjacent hallways. I heard faint voices as well, muttering and whispering from behind the cold steel doors of the storage units. The upper units were the worst, because they weren't brightly lit all the time like the HS units. The upper-level lights were motion-sensitive and on timers. They would turn on when you entered a hallway and turn off when you left. Several times during my rounds, those lights would flick on at the opposite end of a long corridor, 
only to flick off again after a few seconds. One night, during my first round, I was walking the dim asphalt paths between buildings. I turned a corner, and standing before me was a girl. I jumped back in shock, and the girl uttered a short squeak and stopped. You scared the hell out of me, you asshole, she yelled. You aren't supposed to be using that flashlight. I'm sorry, it ruins my night vision, I said. I didn't mean to startle you. I wasn't expecting to see anyone out here. I recognized her. Her name was Jen. She was the bassist for the band that practiced in one of the units. She had long, straight black hair, and her several piercings glittered in the moonlight. I was on my way to your office, Jen said, so I'm kind of glad I ran into you. I'm sorry I snapped at you earlier. I just... I, I can't find Lewis anywhere. Lewis was the gorgeous and talented singer for the band, and, to my deepest regret, her boyfriend. We had a fight and he stormed off like the coward he is. I can't find him now. We walked back to the building that housed her band's storage unit. If he's in the facility, he can't have gone far. Your access code will get him into the main level of this building, but he can't go anywhere else. The elevator takes a code he doesn't have, and the stairwell doors are locked too, I said. The other band members were in their storage unit, rolling up cables and packing gear. Didn't you find him? asked the short, stocky drummer. No, I said. How long's he been gone? About an hour now, replied the drummer. I tried calling him, but I get next to no signal in here. Not like he'd answer anyway, said a tall, skinny kid who was packing away a guitar. He looked at me and said, Ooh, that's a cool travel, man, pointing at the scars on my face. It's not a tattoo, I said, not wanting to get into meet the freak with customers. Will you guys focus, Jen said. Right, I said. You guys stay here in case he comes back. I'll sweep this floor, and if I don't find him, I'll check the video back at the office. I left and checked the entirety of the ground level. For good measure, I checked the upper floors as well, knowing there was no way he could get up there. I went back to the band's storage unit. Did you see anything? Jen asked. No, and he's obviously not coming back here. I'll go check the videos. The band members decided to go home, except for Jen, who insisted upon going through the video footage with me. Look, there he is, she said. I see him. The monitor showed Lewis leaving the storage building right after Jen said he had stormed off. Lewis stood by the door, smoking for a few moments, then turned his head sharply to the right as if he had heard something. Then he threw down his cigarette and walked down the asphalt path out of the view of camera. Where did he go? Quick, find him on the other screen, Jen said, rubbing her hands on her leggings. I toggled through video feeds until I found Lewis again, walking down the path. He stopped, looked around, then turned again and started walking. I switched feeds again and found him walking towards Building 8. Aren't those doors supposed to be closed all the time, Jen asked pointing at a dark spot on the gray and white screen. Yes, I replied, as Lewis paused before the open black threshold of Building 8 and stepped inside. I toggled through the feeds again until I found the one for Building 8. I could only see his silhouette as he walked down the hallway, pausing occasionally to look around, and finally as he pulled open the heavy, magnetically locked security door to the stairwell. He stepped inside and pulled the door closed behind him. 
Crap. That's bad, I said. Those doors are mag-locked, and they can't open unless you have a badge and a code. Jen shook her head. Sure as hell open, though. You saw it. I switched the feeds again, catching a glimpse of Lewis in the stairwell. Switched again and saw him walking down the bright corridor of B2 level toward the camera. Toward an open storage unit, door rolled up and yawning open like the black eye socket of a dead thing. Or a mouth. I saw the pale blob of Lewis's face glance up at the camera, then whip back to face the darkened doorway. His eyes widened, mouth opened into a silent scream, and his figure jerked forward into the storage unit. The heavy door rolled down and slammed shut, leaving the camera staring blindly at the pristinely empty hallway. Chen stared at the screen, mouth slightly open, eyes wide, bulging, ringed in the black of shock that no amount of makeup can match or mask. Go get him! She grabbed my shoulder with hands made musician strong, squeezed, hard. Go get him, now! I grabbed the pistol from its holster and dug two clips out of the bottom desk drawer. I toggled the radio. Al, come in, we got a problem. Wake up, Al. I shouted into the radio as I ran. The radio screeched static and white noise. Al, I need you at work, big trouble. The radio hissed and popped and abruptly turned off. The night seemed alive as I ran to Building 8. The trees outside the facility swayed in a brisk wind, their leaves clattering like faint, mocking laughter. I felt eyes on me and the sense of things around every corner waiting. My scars began to lightly itch as if I had run through cobwebs. I reached Building 8 to find the door tightly shut and locked. As I badged it open, I heard a scraping noise from behind me. I turned, hand on the pistol, to see Jen. Is that blood? she asked, pointing at a small splatter of spots on the floor just inside the door. I tapped a spot with my shoe, smearing it. It's too dark to tell from here. It could be uh, motor oil. Something like that. Look, you shouldn't be in here. Go back to the office until I get back. No way. I, I saw the tape. I saw what happened to Lewis. I'm going to get him, and you're going to help me now. She pushed past me and walked down the hall to the elevators. Help me get this open. I opened the elevator, and we stepped inside. I thumbed the security code and pressed the button for B2. Stay behind me, I said, drawing the pistol. I had no idea what I was doing, but I've played enough video games to know that the monster jumps out after the elevator door opens. I heard a faint click and looked over to see Jen holding a small handgun. My dad got this for me last year. He was nervous about me hanging out downtown. Took me to the shooting range for a few months. She passed a shaky hand over her face and through her hair. Why is this happening? What is happening? And why aren't you scared? I snorted. I'm terrified. I just peed on myself a little back there in case you didn't notice. The elevator chimed and the doors opened. As for what's happening, I don't know. I have an idea, though, and I don't think it's good. I stepped into the corridor, checking both directions. The long, white hallways were bright and quiet. I slowly walked down the hallway toward the storage unit where we had seen Lewis. At the corner, I saw a faint reddish-brown smear. A fingerprint or a thumbprint. As if someone had paused here and touched the wall for support. Jen stared at it for a moment, but said nothing. 
I turned and continued down the hallway. There was a small spattering of blood on the floor in front of the storage unit. It's padlocked, I said. There's no way he could have gotten in there, shut the door and locked it from the outside. Suddenly my scars began to itch and throb, deeply like acid on my face. I drew in a breath and the lights went out. Jen screamed and I heard a pop and click and a clatter and the lights came back on. The padlock was lying on the floor in front of the storage unit. The bright, sterile white fluorescence at the far end of the hallway went dark. Then the next set turned off, and the next, the darkness glowing closer to us in sections. A whispering, muttering sound filled the air. We unconsciously moved closer together and back towards the metal door of the storage unit. The lights went out again, and the darkness rushed in like some eager fluid. Jen and I stood in the whispering dark, pressed together like orphaned children, lost in an abysmal woods for an untold amount of time, until the red emergency lights flickered into a murky life. Their blood-red glow did not so much illuminate as it did accentuate the shadows that pooled and swirled around us. The whispering grew louder and louder, like a river of mumbling, tumbling voices, until it reached a roaring crescendo and then stopped. The storage unit's door slowly rolled open. Lewis was there, sitting on the floor. He was facing away from us, crouched and still. Lewis! Jen exclaimed and tried to run forward. I grabbed her by the arm. Lewis spoke, his voice somehow horrible, drifting up and rattling around the steel walls. They made me come here. They want people to know. They made me see. Made a deep, sobbing, choking sound. I didn't want to see. But they made me. My eyes slowly adjusting to the light, began to make out the shapes in the storage unit, stacked against the walls. Lewis's arms reached out to the nearest oblong shrouded shape and pulled. It tumbled to the concrete floor, making a horrible, dry, husking sound as it hit. A desiccated, shriveled arm fell out of the shroud. Lewis began to stand and began to laugh. He turned his mangled face toward us and stared at us with the deep, black, gouged-out sockets where his eyes had once been. They showed me. They made me see. But I don't have to see anymore. Jen shrieked and recoiled in the hallway. I had the gun trained on Lewis, its grip slick in my shaky hands. The whispering roar was back, rattling the steel walls and doors. With a sickening lurch, I realized that all of the unit's doors were sliding up, and their neatly stacked contents were all falling, sliding, and tumbling to the floor. The sticky, sweet stench of decay that the -the state-of-the-art ventilation systems had masked so well before was now overpowering, filling the air. Bodies. They're all full of bodies. Jen screamed, hands on the side of her face, eyes huge, and shining in the red light, wrenching her black hair, gun forgotten on the floor. I grabbed her by the shoulders, shook her once. Run! 
I shouted and dragged her away from the bodies down the corridor, trying desperately not to hear Lewis' mad laughter. I tripped over a smaller corpse sprawled in front of the unit near the corner and slammed into the opposite wall. I looked down for a moment, saw a white bridal veil covering a small child's withered corpse. I shook my head and staggered to the stairwell door. The whispering was now a full roar, rage-filled voices howling, shaking the security door. I fumbled my badge twice, finally got it, punched the code, and hauled open the door. I grabbed Jen by the arm and dragged her up the stairs. The lights in the stairwell were all wrong, flickering and tilting crazily. I realized my face was wet as I reached the B-1 landing. There was not much of a ground-level landing left. As Jen and I crawled out of the stairwell, we saw that most of the U-Store facility was gone. A few portions of buildings were still standing, but we were otherwise in a field of desolation and destruction, as if the whole block had been mulched. Later I learned that even though tornadoes were common for that area, the one that leveled the U-Store facility was uncommon in both its fury and brevity. Noah reported a small, high-intensity cell appeared directly above the facility at about 6.30 a.m., spawning a slow-moving tornado that rated as an F3. The tornado encompassed the storage facility and stayed in effectively the same spot for a full 15 minutes until moving in a generally northeast direction for about a mile. It appeared to have left the ground for most of its travel, touching down once again in a neighborhood to the northeast of Ustor, before dissipating completely by 7 a.m. They found Al's body, or the remains of it, in the top of a tree two counties over three days later. The coroner's report stated Al died of heart failure. It appears he had a massive heart attack before the tornado got to him. Officially, the U-Store facility was being used for the illegal storage of corpses that were to have been cremated or buried by certain unnamed funeral homes. The fact that those funeral homes were never officially named, and the case was quickly filed away in the darkest, dustiest cabinet available to the Birmingham Police Department, did not make the news. Of course, the scariest part about the whole situation seemed to be uh, the way that even after a freak tornado revealed thousands of unidentified corpses stacked like cordwood inside an absurdly well-secured and well-cooled storage facility, in a relatively large city, people just seemed to forget about it, as if they wanted to forget, or didn't want to know. I didn't see Jen again afterwards. The cops were initially very interested in me, as I was apparently the only living employee of Ustor Inc. that they could locate. They kept me in jail for nearly a week without pressing charges before I started making noises about attorneys. For the first few days, I was completely fine being behind bars. Those bars would keep things out as well. I overheard them say that Jen had been committed to a psychiatric ward due to her story and her insistence that her boyfriend was trying to kill her. She had become violent and attacked one of the officers questioning her. Lewis was never found and neither was his body. The other thing I overheard, the thing that made me decide to leave the jail, was about Ustor's owners. It seems they weren't any. The whole operation was owned by shell companies, and the cops couldn't track down the original owners. Eventually, they stopped looking. I knew that somewhere, some person or some group of people 
arranged to have that storage facility built and to have it equipped for a specialized purpose. I knew that someone had to be responsible for those bodies being there, and I suspected that someone was responsible for those bodies being dead in the first place. Thousands of people disappear in this country each year. I may have found some of them. What keeps me awake at night more than the dreams or the sounds outside my window or the itching of my scars is wondering how many more storage facilities are out there. Well, that concludes part two of Eric Dodd's Tale of Terror. Up next, the final piece of the puzzle falls into place, and we seek closure in part three of the story entitled The Space Between. Can a house be evil? Is it possible for a structure of wood and stone and plaster and glass become more than the sum of its parts in the negative sense. It certainly happens in the positive sense, fill a house with light and love and family, and that sense of comfort and well-being seems to permeate the very walls of the place. But is it possible to architect a bad place, however inadvertently, through the unwitting intersection of board and beam? The house on Red Apple Road was a bad place. It was an oversized farmhouse crouched sullenly on a slight rise, overlooking thorn-tangled fields long left to run wild. The house's peeling paint may have once been white or gray, but sun and time had long reached the true colors away, leaving the walls a jaundiced, sickly yellow. A single diseased elm leaned drunkenly in the shaggy yard, a rusted chain swing hanging from its single limb. The house's windows were all intact and winked in the sunlight like they knew a secret. The rent was cheap. Bad luck or worse circumstances saw me driving a beaten-down Corolla to a nowhere town for a stay I hoped was only temporary. The house's owner, Bursell Lowry, bought the place for a steal at a bank auction. The prior owners had stopped paying the mortgage several years before and had skipped town shortly afterwards. Lowry was a distant relative, and a call from my uncle prompted Lowry to offer the house for only a couple hundred a month. I began hearing stories about the house soon after I moved in, my few possessions. Lowry had a hard time keeping renters, which explained the cheap rent. Most of his tenants stayed less than six months, and one family only stayed a single night before fleeing the state entirely, leaving behind their deposit and their dog. I laughed most of these stories off as small-town folk trying to haze a newcomer. I had experienced nothing in the house so far, aside from weak water pressure and a lack of functional air conditioning, which Lowry had remedied with a new window-mount unit. I became more interested when I heard Jim's story. Jim was a manager at the Waffle House in town. He was a drunk, but he maintained through his drunkenness an iron will and genial good humor that made my night shifts as a short-order cook bearable, almost fun. My nephew died in the front yard, Jim said, drinking from his coffee mug on a slow Monday night, really Tuesday morning. Cops said he weren't wearing a seatbelt. Car ran off the road, hit the ditch, 
and threw him out the front window. They said he was dead before he hit the ground. Jim drank deeply. Thing is, Paul wasn't the only one who died in that house's front yard. If you're from around here and you know where you are and where you're going, you know to be careful driving on Red Apple Road, and you don't use your brights when you go around the curve. Red Apple Road curved to the left around the house, and there was a deep ditch between the road and the house. According to Jim, the house's windows faced directly opposite oncoming traffic and would reflect the bright light of a car's high beams onto the driver's eyes. Every few years, some glare-blinded driver would misjudge the turn and slam into the ditch. By Jim's count, that curve had claimed over 30 lives. 30 people? Come on, Jim. You pull on my leg. Wouldn't the state put up a guardrail or something, I asked? State's broke. County's worse off. It ain't a priority, as they say. Some folks just slow down. It gets to be a habit, I guess. Until one night, maybe they's drank some, maybe it's raining, maybe they's just not thinking where they are. Then bam! Jim wiped smudges from the cash register. Surely Mr. Lowry would fix the windows, covering them up or something. People have tried, Jim said. Shrubs don't grow in that yard. A family that lived there in the 80s tried putting up black tar paper over the windows right after a real bad accident. Didn't last a week. The tar paper came down and the family moved away. Wow, well, no wonder the rent's so cheap, I said. Jim laughed. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. Ask around town. He said no more afterwards and commanded me to degrease some vent hoods, which I did willingly, lost in thought about my new home. When I got back to the house, it was full on, the sun shining over the horizon, and morning dew sparkled in the fields. The house on Red Apple Road crouched sullenly in the morning mists, seeming to be resentful of the cheerful light. The bare, scrappy yard and the steep-sided embankment had new meaning, as did the scrapes on the asphalt of the road near the house. I was slightly spooked from Jim's story, so I did a quick walk through the house. Most of the rooms were bare, save for the living room, which was piled with boxes. My bedroom had a mattress on the floor and a few open boxes of clothing. I had installed heavy blackout curtains as soon as I was hired for my night shift job, so the room was very dark. After a quick shower, I fell asleep almost instantly. Only pieces of the dream came back to me, but it involved grasping fingers and a terrible screaming sound and flying feathers. I woke with a start, sitting bolt upright in bed, sweat-drenched sheets twisted around me. I was disoriented at first, blinking into bright sunlight. I looked around and realized that my blackout curtains were gone. I checked my watch. Noon. I'd only been asleep for four hours before the dream. I got out of bed and walked to one of the windows, thinking the curtains had simply come loose from the wall and fallen to the floor. They had not. There was no sign of them anywhere in the room. I checked the bedroom door and found it the way I'd left it, locked. I unlocked the bedroom door and walked out into the rest of the house. The front and back doors were both deadbolted from the inside, and in the kitchen, every cabinet door and every drawer stood open, and their contents were strewn across the floor. At this point, I was pissed. I called my landlord. Mr. Lowry, I, I don't appreciate practical jokes, 
If this is the way you make up for cheap rent, fine. But don't mess with my sleep. I don't know what you're talking about, son, said Lowry. I'm talking about how you or one of your friends took the curtains off my windows while I was asleep and messed up my kitchen. I've been at a doctor's appointment all morning. Just calm down. I'll be there in half an hour, and I'll, I'll reimburse you for any damages. By this point, there was no way I could sleep, so after cleaning up the kitchen, I started unpacking. Half an hour later, Bursell Lowry rapped on the screen door. I showed him the kitchen and some stubborn stains on the white cabinet doors, and he made some concerned noises. He had brought a replacement lock set, and I helped hold the doors as he replaced the deadbolts. I could have sworn I replaced these after the Hernandez family moved out, but you never know. Might be some kids took it in their heads to give you some grief, he said. We looked throughout the house for the missing curtains, but could not find them. In one of the two upstairs bedrooms, I noticed a small square cutout for an attic access. I pointed at it, but Lowry refused. I don't have a ladder, and besides, this is an old, old house. I fumigate the house between tenants, but you can never get rid of all the spiders in old attics like this. If someone took your curtains and put them up there, you don't want them back. I found a roll of aluminum foil in a box in the kitchen, and Lowry helped me tape the foil to the two windows in my bedroom. He left shortly afterwards, and I collapsed on the bed, hoping for a few more hours of uninterrupted sleep before my shift. I woke to the sound of screaming, and for a moment wondered who was making the noise until I realized it was me. I couldn't recall the dream, only that it was bad. A bright light filled the bedroom, casting my shadow hugely on the wall. I turned and realized that the foil was gone from both windows. The light was from a car on Red Apple Road going around a curve. I sighed, got out of bed, and got dressed for work. The next morning, after work, I walked down Red Apple Road, away from the house, and then I walked back. I could clearly see the deep scratches on the asphalt and how they aligned with the punched-out gouges on the embankment. The house continued to taunt me in small ways over the course of the next few days. Lights that I knew I had turned off were on when I came home. Boxes were moved or knocked over. I was greeted at the door by the smell of baking cookies one morning and found the oven on, set to bake. There were no cookies. The house developed a gradual sense of wrongness that existed more at the corner of my eye than straight ahead. When passing doorways into other rooms, those rooms would seem, from a casual glance, to be much larger and to contain more furniture or other things. The stairway in the front hallway did not exist, yet I could feel it behind me as I walked out the front door every night, stretching up the second floor that wasn't there and down to a basement that never was. I could hear the echoes of my footsteps against the hardwood steps and feel the draft from the basement, but only when I had forgotten to firmly believe that the house had only a single floor. On my day off, I went shopping at the town's small supermarket, which was a filthy piggly-wiggly that had seen better decades. At the checkout counter, the red-haired, morbidly obese woman fluttered her canary-yellow eyelids at me. I was living in that haunted house, she asked. I looked at her. Everyone knows it's haunted. The place has been bad luck for as long as anyone remembers. 
I bet that old queer Lowry didn't tell you what happened to the last people, did he? She lowered her voice to a conspiratorial whisper, piggly little eyes gleaming under the fluorescence. The father went crazy, like in that movie with the hotel. Killed all the kids except for the one that was with the mother. He died in jail, and she's out of state. You know what's the worst? They never found the bodies of those kids. He said the house took them. The cops dug up all the fields around here, had dogs out and all, but they never did find those poor babies. I swallowed and grabbed my bag of groceries. Well, thanks for the info. No problem, honey, and don't let me make you nervous. It's just small-town gossip. There ain't no such thing as ghosts. The late evening sun reflected like blood or fire in the house's windows when I returned. I put my groceries away in the kitchen and put other purchases in the bedroom in front of the windows. I walked through the rest of the rooms of the house holding a battered old flashlight like a club. The grocery store lady's story had spooked me more than I cared to admit. After finding no ghosts in the closets or demons in the bathroom, I gave myself a mental shake and went to the living room to read. After so many night shift evenings, I knew I would be awake for a long time. The loud cracking sound jolted me awake, heart hammering in my chest. I looked around the room, unsure of where I was. I realized I had fallen asleep in my chair. My book was on the floor, and I decided that it had woken me when it fell. I laughed to myself, shook my head, and stood up to stretch. Mid-stretch, I heard an answering laugh from upstairs. I looked up, and my heart began to race again. Footsteps from above. I grabbed the long metal flashlight from beside my chair and cautiously stepped into the foyer. I pushed the button for the hall light and tightened my grip on the flashlight. More shuffling from upstairs and a tithering, wheezing laugh. I stood at the bottom of the stairs and tried to see through the darkness at the top. I placed my foot on the first step and another crack reverberated through the house. I glanced behind me to the front door and saw a light dusting of plaster falling from the ceiling in front of it. I climbed the stairs, riser after riser, of old wood so brown as to be nearly black. The upstairs hallway was short and thankfully empty. I hit the light switch with a sweat-slick palm, fumbling at the unfamiliar two-button style until the bare bulb turned on, shining its one yellow light flickeringly into peeling wallpaper and three brown wooden doors. I yanked open the door closest to me, across from the stairwell to find a shallow linen closet stuffed with old quilts and blankets. I shut the door and listened for sounds. The house was silent, as if it was holding its breath before revealing a surprise. I turned to my left and walked to the door at the end of the hall. The plaster was arched there, as was the door, which was smaller than the other doors in the house. The black iron knob was very cold when I grasped it and squealed like something unpleasant when turned. The small door swung wide into the room and darkness spilled out onto the hallway like the lolling tongue of a hanging victim. My flashlight did little to dispel the gloom. I walked a step forward and another and another 
And as I crossed the threshold of that little doorway, I noticed two lighter spots in the murk, two spots that disappeared and reappeared. A low chuckle burbled up from my left. Welcome, stranger, said a high-pitched, childlike voice. You're in time for dinner. A dim red light began to filter into the room, revealing a scene from a carnal house. The walls and floors were caked and coated with gore, dripping in clots that gleamed black in the strange light. A rough wooden table dominated the center of the room, cluttered with the rotting ruins of a cannibal feast, limbs and entrails draped in disarray across the blood-drenched wood. Crouched at one end of the table, hunched a nude, haggard man, gray-black hair, greasy and limp against his pocketed and disfigured flesh. His jagged teeth bit and gnashed as he cracked a small, delicate bone and sucked at the marrow. He rolled flat and somehow fish-like yellow eyes at me. "'That's my papa,' the voice said. "'Not my real papa. My real papa's dead. It's okay.' I looked to the left and saw her. The girl was small, with an unhealthy white skin and black hair, that glinted redly in the light. She could have passed for ten or twelve, save for her eyes. Her eyes were nothing human, gaping black bottomless wounds in her small, delicate face. Two holes gouged through the skin of the world. My new papa raised me himself from when I was a little baby. He raised me to be a queen. She had been slowly creeping towards me as she spoke, one stuttering step after another, as if she was unfamiliar with something so mundane as walking. They're coming. This is their place. You can join us. You can be with us to welcome them. Another step. This is the between. They come from outside. They were here before. They, they want in. Her foot came down on a small bone, and as it snapped... I realized she was right in front of me, so close that I could smell the reek of corpse flesh from her breath. I could see the rags of it in her teeth. I realized there was no second floor. There had never been a second floor. I ran, turned and ran, pounding down the hallway that was far longer than before, far too long, down a flight of stairs that had two more turns and two more landings than it had when I climbed them feeling her small, childish hands grasping at the nape of my neck. I hit the front door with full force, knowing it would be stuck firm, but hoping, and it burst wide open, sagging from one hinge. I continued running until I reached the car. I flung the door open and jumped in. I slammed the door shut, locked it, and glanced at the back seat. There was nothing. With a deep sense of dread, I slowly lifted my gaze to the house. The single-story structure stood black and silent, its front door hanging askew from broken hinges. I passed a shaking hand through my sweat-slicked hair. For a moment, my view doubled and I saw a different house, one with a second and a third floor, one with a shadow in front of the upstairs window. I revved the little car's engine and drove away from the house as fast as the car would go. The car idled in a church parking lot a few miles away. I pulled out the cell phone I had stashed in the center console and dialed the one number that I had programmed in. 
It rang the other prepaid cell phone I had bought weeks ago. I rubbed my face, feeling the slightly raised skin of the long-heeled scars that had been itching and throbbing for weeks that I stayed in that house. I believe you. I'll do it. I pulled a SIM card out of the phone, snapped it in half, and threw the pieces out the window. I cracked a rib or two when I bounced off of an old wooden fence post. I had to guide the car far enough off the road to avoid the embankment, but close enough to hit the window's dead center. That meant being inside a burning car for far longer than I was comfortable with. I had strewn several liquor bottles around the front of the car and wedged the accelerator with a brick and some rope. Just in case, I wore a BMX off-roading jacket and an old motorcycle helmet. At the last moment, I lit the rag protruding from the small jug of kerosene I had belted into the driver's seat. The car hit the side of the house with a satisfying crunch, shattering those hateful, murderous windows and rupturing the cans of kerosene I stored in the bedroom. I lay on my undamaged side in the field, wheezing into the silence for a few moments. Then, with a sound that was like a shocked inhalation, there was a huff and a whoomp, and the fuel caught. Within moments, the side of the house was in flames. In half an hour, the place was a pyre. I watched it burn from a slight distance away, under the boughs of an oak that was older than the state in which it stood. The fire roared and screeched like bitter, thwarted rage. Lowry was good to his word, though it took almost a year for him to get the money to me. When his insurance company finally settled, he made quite a profit. Promised him I would put the money to good use. There's always something else out there waiting to be put down. Thank you for joining me tonight for Eric Dodd's three-part series. If you'd like to learn more about Eric and his collection of horrifying fiction, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Featured Authors under the About Us link at the top of the site, and you'll find Eric listed there alongside other talented writers. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. 
got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed. I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha ha ha!